So our reading today is Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation. Plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. Two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, 
in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is God's word. Good evening, everyone. I think I've uh, met many of you, but for those who I haven't met, hello, my name's Matt. Let me pray. Our Father, you, our Creator, we praise you and we worship you, and we thank you that you deign to stoop to speak to creatures such as us. And we pray this evening you will be pleased, O Creator Father, to do us much good. Please give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. Amen. Well, good evening. Today we begin a two-part mini-series, if you like, on the topic of work. I don't know what you think when you say work. Some are looking out, I, I know, some of you, even like in the last couple of weeks, have started, started if you like, the nine-to-five grind of work. Looking at some of you, you've been doing that nine-to-five grind a lot longer. Have a listen to this email. This was an email that one of you guys sent me, actually, a few weeks ago when you knew that we were going to be talking about work. And it suggests some of the things that might be good to cover in this sermon series. Have a listen to it and see whether any of the issues that are raised resonate with you. It says, I reckon I find it difficult to decide what I should spend my time doing. I'm pretty sure work has intrinsic value and more than just in as much as it provides me networks for evangelism. But at the same time, I know that all work that doesn't spread the gospel is ultimately fruitless. If all work but evangelism is fruitless, then why not all become evangelists? And yet I don't really believe that's the best thing for everyone to do. The good ordering of society, good stewardship of our planet, caring for the physical needs of our communities and the pursuit of knowledge and discovery are all important things. The risk of doing that, though, is that I'll settle for a lukewarm Christianity and I'll find my security in it and not the Lord. What should I choose? Does it 
not particularly matter, provided I make good use of my gifts. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty good summary of some of the issues that we face regarding work, isn't it? Is, is anything other than evangelism fruitless? Or is it important to spend our time in our work serving our communities, pursuing arts, pursuing music, pursuing knowledge? How can I do that, though, without making that the focus of my life rather than the Lord? How should I choose what to do? Is God like a kind of a sort of fire and brimstone televangelist who only really cares how many souls I bring with me? Or is he more like a pushy parent who wants me to make the best use of all the gifts that I have? This is a two-part series, really, uh, perhaps even more than some other series. This is very, it's very important that we get both of the sermons on this because we'll only get a half a picture if we're here for one of them. So please, uh, as much as I can, please do, do come back next week. Gosh, that wasn't meant to be a funny part of the sermon. That's, that's always very disconcerting when that happens. Uh, now, when I'm, when I'm talking about work in, in this series, I'm primarily talking about, as I said, the nine to five jobs that most of us, most of us have. I'm aware in speaking about work that it may well be a painful subject for some people who are not able to work at the moment for, and who want to work but are not able to for whatever reason. I'm also aware that other things could well be described as work, such as you know, at one end of the spectrum, bringing up kids or caring for elderly relatives. At the other end of the spectrum, something as mundane as paying the bills when we, when we get back in the evening. All of those things can be spoken of as work, but I'm primarily talking about the 9 to 5. I know it's not 9 to 5. Would that it were was from 9 to 5, eh? What I'm trying to do is to, in this series, I suppose, is to help us sort of get in place, if you like, the, the kind of big tectonic plates of a Christian view of reality. Uh, and it's, I'm afraid we won't have as much time as I would like to sort of talk about the specific, some of the specific ethical issues that you might face at work or what sort of character we're supposed to develop at work vitally as important as those things are. This week, we are looking at the dignified purpose of work. And the first thing we need to know is that work is a very good part of God's design for humanity. Work is a very good part of God's design for humanity. Do you know, how how many words do you have to go in the Bible before work gets a mention? Seriously, have a look. Five. Oh, God, it's interactive. Wow. Didn't know whether you're allowed to do that sort of thing here. That's great, Andy. Five words, exactly. In the beginning, God created. Right from the start. Here we go. Straight in, seeing God make stuff out of nothing, make stuff that wasn't there before. God categorizing things. God separating things. God giving things a purpose. God giving things to, things, things to do. God creating, if you like, the, I suppose, the meta structures of light and darkness uh, and sea and sky and, and dry ground and then populating those structures with the sun, the moon, the stars, birds, fish, antelope, and human beings. From the beginning, as Stephen said right at the start, God 
God is the worker. He's the architect. He's the engineer. He's the construction worker, if you like, the scientist. He's the sociologist, the lawyer, the artist, the gardener. And in the midst of all that, he does something very strange. Verse 28. God gives us work to do. Verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Think how weird that is, right? Because if you look back at verse 16, verse 16, to make stars, God just went, stars. And suddenly, there were millions and billions of stars. And, you know, the Milky Way and all those big structures that physicists and you guys can tell me about afterwards. God just went, stars. It wouldn't have taken God any effort to make the world with seven billion human beings on it already. It wouldn't have taken God any effort to make the world with plowed fields and and roads and cities on it and stuff right from the start. But he doesn't. God, who himself is the worker, gives humanity work to do. Work that is in some sense an echo of the creating, organizing, and sustaining work that he himself does. And that's what we need to know. Working is part of what it means to be made in God's image. It's part of what it means to be made in God's image. And that's why, that's why it's satisfying to cross things off a list or paint a masterpiece or bring a product to market or organize a spreadsheet. Well, it might not be for everyone, but I used to be an accountant, so it is for me. Or compose a symphony or teach kids how to color in. It's how we're made. Part of what it means to be human is to work. And that is why it can be so painful, being unemployed. And the obvious thing to point out is that this work was given to humanity while we were still in the Garden of Eden. Work was there from the very beginning. Work was there from the very beginning. So you have a look. Chapter, uh, verse 28 again. See, verse 28 doesn't say God burdened them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. No, it said God, God blessed them. Work is, work is a gift. I know obviously it doesn't always feel like that, and we will talk about that a lot more next week. But God's design for work is that it is a gift. It is not a necessary evil imposed on humanity as a result of our sin. And then verse 31, look, it doesn't say God looked on all that he has made and it was all right apart from the work bit and God said, look, I'm sorry guys about the work bit. I know you'd rather be on the golf course or in the health spa, but don't worry, it's only for the first 65 years, then it'll get better. It doesn't say that. In in the beginning, God gave us work and it was a 
It was very good. Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, work isn't all of what it means to be a human being. Even the, the Ten Commandments make that very clear, don't they? Exodus 20, work for six days, rest on the seventh day. And clearly, we have many other responsibilities to our, uh, to our families, to church, to rest, that are not work. But we must never forget, work is not necessary evil. It is something to be embraced, and dare I say it, it is something to be enjoyed. But then you might say, well, to what, to what end are we to engage in this work? And that's kind of how we move on to our, our second point, really. You know, Jesus, Jesus was once asked, wasn't he, what, what should be a human being's priority? And the answer Jesus gave, in a word, was love. Love God and love other human beings. And there is no reason to think that that shouldn't be right at the heart of our work, just as much as it should be right at the heart of everything we do. So you say, well, why do we go to work? Well, you can really say all work should be about loving service. That's our second point. All work should be about loving service. The problem is, though, um, and it's not just Christians who observe this, it's non-Christian thinkers. Certainly in the last, I suppose, century, people have observed that work, that idea that you go to work to, to serve your community or to serve society, that idea has, has been eroded to virtually, virtually so that it's not non-existent. You guys know what this is? You guys seen that? Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Get a few nods, a few nods. Yeah, yeah. Right, I don't, you can take it off now because I don't want us to spend our time reading that. But the thing is, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, he was, he was a, a sort of a, a psychologist um, last century. I think he was 1908 to 1970. And his, his ideas have been very, very influential, particularly on business practice. I don't know, I remember studying at A-level business Studies. I did it when I did my accountancy exams as well. I guess you guys must have seen it at school or college or whatever. And his idea was, he said, well, look, what I reckon you can do is to, is to kind of uh, break down the human psyche and say, well, these things motivate human beings. Human beings need certain things to motivate them. Uh, that's true in general in life, but it's particularly true in the workplace. And his ideas, I, I think, have been very, very influential in, uh, in how we're taught about uh, the market and business. And I think probably, uh, sort of um, tangentially influential in how we think about work. Because he says, look, there, there are certain things that motivate people in the workplace. Okay? He, says, um, he says, you know, they're the basic needs like food and drink and shelter. Then there are other needs like relationships and things like that. But he says right at the top, right at the top of that pyramid were things um, like realizing your potential or self-fulfillment, personal growth, or as as he puts it, sort of self-actualization. But nowhere is service mentioned. 
doesn't, it just doesn't factor in the discussion these days about what the point of work is. But the problem is that if we buy into that way of thinking, then, then we, we will never ask questions like, given who God has made me, given what gifts I have, how can I use those gifts to best serve others? We, we just won't ask those type of questions. What we will do is ask questions like, how can I use work as a means of my own self-fulfillment? Now, don't get me wrong. We've just seen that work should be fulfilling. But like with any area of the Christian life, that, that fulfillment comes not as we chase after it as an end in itself, but as we try and serve other people. Yeah, as I say, this kind of thinking has become so prevalent in, in how we think about work and how we do work. You'll know doctors, I'm sure, who, who don't want to heal patients necessarily because it's good to heal patients. They want to heal patients so that they look prestigious and they rise through the ranks and people hold them in high esteem. You'll know lawyers, I'm sure. Lawyers who don't, don't work because by working they serve society by upholding justice, but lawyers who work for fees, who work to look big in the world's eyes, or at least to have enough money to eat where they want to eat and go on the weekend breaks where they want to go. And the scary thing for us is that that kind of idea of of using work for our own self-fulfillment gets dressed up in in fine-sounding language that would get many a proud parent cooing. Language like, I think it's really important to make the most of the opportunities I've been given. Language like, I think it's really important to achieve my full potential. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, if you've got a, if there's a choice, you know, a 50-50 choice between, between job A and job B, they're both about the same and one earns, one pays you a lot more money, well, go for job B, that's fine. But I am saying, just think about how much we kind of imbibe this type of thinking, that, that work is there to be used for our own self-fulfillment. You know, I think, as I've been, as I've reflected on it over the years, uh, Christian and non-Christian friends, I think. To speak to some young professionals in this city, it almost sounds as if people think it's like a, a kind of moral duty to make sure that your career is always on an upward progress. People think it's, it's a kind of a moral duty to take all the opportunities you're given. And, and the Bible says, no, it isn't. It absolutely isn't. God's view of work as service is massively liberating. It liberates us to say, no, it's not a moral duty that my career is always in the ascendancy. It's not a moral duty that I have to take all the opportunities I'm given. It's not a moral duty that I have to, you know, jostle for position in the office. God's view of work frees us. It frees us from, from that tyranny. Frees us from the tyranny of saying, no, I don't, I don't need to take that secondment overseas just because work offers it to me and it would be good. It, it frees us to, to think, how can I, the, the man or woman that God has made me, 
best serve society. And that is, that is a wonderfully, wonderfully liberating way to think about work. Jesus says, love God, love your neighbor. And we're to take that idea into the workplace just as much as we would do anywhere else. You know, one way I found um, helpful, actually, to, to think about this idea of work being about service was to remind myself, actually, just how much I need to be served by other people's work. I'll try, try it one day. I, I, I prepared a lot of this sermon, uh, sat in Pret, working on my laptop. And I just, look, I just thought, how, how much do, have I needed to be served by other people's work to do this? You know, there's, there's obviously the barista who's made my coffee. There's the, the lumberjack who's chopped down the wood to make the table. <laughs> There's the, there's the factory worker who's made the, the, the faux leather covering of the chair I'm sitting on. I look out of the window, there's the, there's the street sweeper making sure that when I walk back to the church building I'm not walking through knee-high garbage. There's the optician who's prescribed my glasses so that I can see the screen. Think about how much, even getting here tonight, you have been served by other people's work. God has designed this wonderful organism, organism of society. We need to be served by other people's work and where we are to serve other people in our work. But there's, there's even more to be said than that. Uh, because I think basically all, the, all that we've said so far, I, I think it's right, I think it's what the Bible says, but... Actually, really, you could, you could probably agree with what we've said so far if you were a, a Muslim or a Jewish person. You could probably think about the out, you could probably agree with the outworking of what we've said if you were a, a tender-hearted atheist, I think. If, if we're to think, though, really Christianly about work, we've got to say more. And we've got to recognize what we believe as Christians is that Jesus is Lord over all creation. That is the fundamental a tenet of all of reality, if you like. And that's our, that's our third point. All work should be informed by Christ's lordship. Flick on with me, will you please, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you, and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. To verse 23, God says, yeah, work with all your heart. But remember, your ultimate boss is Jesus, not any man or woman. Your ultimate boss is Jesus. I used to I used to try and preach that to myself when I worked at KPMG as an auditor. I still try and preach it to myself now. Is Matt Fuller my boss? Well, yeah, obviously he is. Tell him I said that when he gets back. Is Matt full of my boss? Yeah, of course. And I try and work hard to, to please him uh, you know, and work hard to serve him. But this says, no, Matt, remember that actually 
Jesus is your ultimate boss. And that means, on the one hand, I work hard even when Matt's not around in the office to check up on me. But on the other hand, something I find incredibly liberating, actually, it means that that actually it's not Matt Fuller or, or any other boss's opinion of my working day that ultimately matters. It's Jesus's opinion of my working day because he is my ultimate boss. That's a great thing to preach to ourselves when, when all of us, I know we will, we will all find ourselves overly anxious at some points in time about pleasing our earthly bosses, as it were. Preach this to yourself. I go to work today not to serve whoever but Jesus. That is wonderfully liberating and it helps us keep the right perspective that we are off to work today to serve God and to serve other people. But there's even more, finally, there's even more that we need to say about what it means to think Christianly about work. So you have a look at what 4 verse 1 says. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, there's, there's lots of things to say, obviously. We don't have a lot of time. I think, I think the natural extrapolation of that line of thinking in Colossians is to say that to some degree, in some way, Jesus' lordship, the rule of the just and fair King Jesus, must influence our business practices. It must influence what actually goes on at work. Now, I wish I had longer to speak about this. Uh, It's a a very um, complicated subject to speak about in a balanced way. I'm certainly not suggesting that, that... that we as Christians, by sort of transforming business practices, can create utopia on earth. Absolutely not. I'm certainly not suggesting that we should ever forget that people's greatest needs is to have their sins forgiven before God. Absolutely not. And please, run a mile from, from any Christian teaching that suggests those things. What I am saying is that in some way, within our sphere of influence, where we have opportunity, we do need to, to think about how Jesus' lordship affects business practices. Uh, a litmus test you could try would be to say, well, just imagine for the moment that, that all my customers and all my colleagues were Christians would I be happy with the way this business is being conducted? And if not, I, to some degree, we have, we have some sort of duty to stand up and say that, that that is not right. And obviously, you've got to balance that duty with all the other myriad responsibilities we have as Christians. For example, I, Megan, you may know, works for a wine company. I think that's great. Not least the discounts we get on wine. But if Megan was, Megan's company suddenly said to her, look, I need you, we need you to start selling discounted vodka, you know, and the, the, the explicit idea was to make money off people getting drunk on a Friday night, then yeah, I, I think Megan probably would have a duty to at least to say something to her bosses and say, look, do you know what? Because Jesus is Lord, that, that is not appropriate. 
Now, I'm no idealist. I, I'm not necessarily sure at all her bosses, bosses would listen to her. But at least she would have marked herself out as someone who is living under Jesus' lordship. And I'm sure that would sort of explode her opportunities for evangelism. All our work must be informed by Christ's lordship. Now, I know that's a, that's a complicated area that we've just broached there. Please, if you have any questions, I, I genuinely would love to talk about them with you afterwards. The point I'm making is that we mustn't think that G, uh, sort of the world of work is sealed off from Christ's lordship so that it's conducted by rules that are, that are separate to other rules. No, Jesus is lord over everything, including our workplaces. So, where does that leave us with some of the questions that we started with? We've got some of the answers now. I think we, we certainly don't have all of them. We certainly won't have all of them by the end of next week, but we will have more nuance next week. But where we've got to so far, I think, is this. Does, does work have intrinsic value? Yes, yes, absolutely it does. It's part of what it means to be human. It's part of what it means to be made in God's image, and it's integral to, integral to God's plan for his creation. Is anything other than evangelism fruitless? No, no, it isn't. We're going to see next week, evangelism is really important. But it doesn't mean that other stuff is fruitless. We need to serve others in our work and recognize that we need to be served by them. How can I pursue a vocation without getting distracted by it? Remember that Jesus is Lord. What job should I choose to do? Well, I'll leave you some, some words from uh, Richard Baxter. Choose that employment or calling in which you may be most serviceable to God. Choose not that in which you may be most rich or honorable in the world, but that in which you may do most good and best escape sinning. Yet take heed, lest under the pretense of diligence in your calling you be drawn to earthly-mindedness and excessive cares or covetous designs for rising in the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the dignity you give us of in some sense sharing in this echo of the work that you did and still do in creation. We thank you for that. We thank you for the glimpses of joy we, we yet still do have in our jobs. And we ask that you will help us to be people who go to work on Tuesday, keen to serve other people and keen to serve society in the, in the small areas of influence we do have. And yet in all of this, Heavenly Father, we pray that you will keep the risen and ascended Jesus, who is Lord over all, fixed in our minds so that we work hard and so that we don't fear our boss's opinion of us and so that we live in all ways and conduct our work in all ways in a manner pleasing to him. Pray this, that his name may be extolled and spoken of in our workplaces. Amen.